Hello and welcome back to Matter of Choice, where I take an intersectional and historical lens to modern day feminist issues. My name's Maida and I'm your host here on this podcast, where I am excited to journey with you through deep discussions on feminism. As I like to say, there are no human rights without a fight, and when it comes to matters of choice, our greatest weapon is our collective voice. Here, we approach feminism with a critical eye, keen on recognizing the good and the bad so that we can celebrate our progress and pursue a better future for women everywhere. Episode five, not just gender, but also race, the Dobbs decision. In today's episode, we are going to be discussing the Dobbs decision, which is the recent call in the United States to overturn the landmark case of Roe versus Wade. If you've been following the news lately, you might already be familiar with this event, as it has generated a great deal of controversy. But if not, not to worry, because we will be spending quite a bit of time discussing it today. To start off with some context, on June 24th, 2022, the United States Supreme Court justices struck down this case, which established medical abortions as a constitutional right assured to all women. As discussed by McSpedden, while there have been anti-abortionist efforts ever since the implementation of Roe versus Wade, the constitutional protection over medical abortions has existed for over 50 years until now, page 42. And even though this decision threatens the bodily autonomy of women everywhere, or individuals with a uterus more accurately, In today's episode, we are going to be delving into how this is particularly detrimental for women of color. Racialized women are already prone to experiencing biases in the healthcare system. And when it comes to abortion procedures, many scholars, scholars whom we will be looking at today, suggest that this demographic experiences limited accessibility with regard to undergoing this procedure. For today's discussion, We will consider how the failure of the United States to assure medical abortions as a constitutional right is only a fraction of a broader conversation on reproductive justice, wherein the nation's cultural roots of misogyny and racism have created institutions designed to rob racialized women of their bodily autonomy. In order to create a future that respects the agency of women of color, we must center our discussion on this group's lived experience so as to reshape the narrative surrounding reproductive rights. To kick things off today, I'm going to start by discussing Roe versus Wade and what the loss of this case means. From there, I'll move on to considering the biases in the American healthcare system and look at how this impacts women of color seeking abortions. Part three will delve deeper into the cultural and historical roots of misogyny and racism in American society and look at how this has spurred the need for reproductive justice. In part four, we will look at the advocacy efforts of women of color so that this can inform us of the future of reproductive justice. And as previously mentioned, we'll be incorporating scholarly literature throughout this discussion. If at any point you wish to learn more about my sources, feel free to find my reference page in the link of this podcast. Otherwise, 
I will be mentioning any relevant authors and page numbers of their text to keep you informed of my sources. So stick around, get comfortable, and together we can really unpack the complexity of abortion rights and see how this controversial issue looks through an intersectional lens. Part one, what the loss of Roe versus Wade means. It was in 1973 that the Supreme Court met a judgment on Roe versus Wade and ruled that abortion procedures are a private right that must be afforded to women should they so seek it. That being said, the court still awarded some control to the government by recognizing that there may be some state regulation following the end of a pregnant woman's first trimester. Leg, page 479. But if it seems like the American people settled on this matter following the court's decision, think again. In the aftermath of this case, there were plenty of feminist groups that believed state regulation should be entirely removed, which was opposed by pro-life supporters who argued that there is no case in which an abortion can be permitted. Recent data on abortion attitudes suggest that there has been a trend towards liberalization in public opinion, meaning that there is a greater proportion of the population that supports pro-choice policy now, especially given certain conditions like pregnancy following rape, threats to maternal health, and poor economic circumstances. There are a number of factors that may correlate with abortion attitudes, but a strong religious commitment is especially related with a pro-life stance in politics. Leg, page 481. Anti-abortionist thought tends to revolve around the sanctity of life of the unborn fetus from a religious point of view, whereas pro-choice arguments focus on the rights and agency of women who are otherwise treated as passive vessels by the pro-life stance. Baker and others, page 441. When the Supreme Court decided to overturn Roe versus Wade this year, it meant that going forward, individual states would be free to make independent calls regarding abortion rights. One of the justices even claimed that the states don't have to make exceptions for circumstances like rape and incest, which are generally perceived as a greater incentive to pursue an abortion. Despite the relative trend towards liberalization discussed by Leg, Cohen, Sanchez, and their peers reveal that many states were all too ready to enact their pro-life policy. 26 states had a series of bans that they sought to implement. 13 had trigger laws, meaning that they automatically became active upon the loss of Roe versus Wade. And 11 states had early gestational age bans meaning that abortion would become illegal at the beginning stages of a pregnancy, page one. Many regions in the United States were all too ready to ban access to abortions and hinder the bodily autonomy of women residing within their territory. In this sense, the institutions of the United States are prone to discriminating along the lines of gender, given that a handful of states were eager to infringe upon the private rights of women. Even though the United States judicial system is now suggesting that abortion rights are not to be constitutionally protected, reproductive and sexual rights remain ratified by the United Nations, reinforcing the standpoint that the loss of Roe versus Wade translates into an attack on women's rights. Finger, page 171. 
But what about along the lines of race? As indicated by Cohen Sanchez and others, this decision to overrule Roe versus Wade is predicted to mostly affect marginalized women, which includes women of color, trans women, as well as disabled women. To unpack this argument, it is important to reframe reproductive justice as an ongoing struggle within the United States. In the following sections of this episode, we're going to be looking at how the system has never been designed to accommodate women of color. And as a result, the loss of Roe versus Wade only exacerbates the existing intersection of racism and sexism in the realm of reproductive rights. Part two, abortions and women of color. As always, on matter of choice, I place an intersectional lens on modern day feminist issues because unfortunately, women's rights as a movement has not always been inclusive in nature. Coined by women's rights activist Kimberly Crenshaw on page 1244 of her text, intersectionality theory reveals that race and gender are not mutually exclusive concepts and are capable of intermingling in order to produce unique lived experiences. In other words, while all women may be affected by misogyny, women of color will experience the extra tolls of race-based discrimination alongside gender biases. Crenshaw, for example, made the argument that Black women are perceived as sexually promiscuous individuals. So this signifies a niche derogatory stereotype that hinges upon the combination of race and sex as white women are not subject to this same assumption. Page 1279. On this podcast, We focus on the term lived experience because it rejects a homogenous interpretation of systemic discrimination. Not all women are the same, and so feminist studies should not limit their analyses to the experiences of white women. To do so would be to rob our conversations of all their nuance and complexity. For the purposes of today's episode, we are going to be considering the lived experiences of racialized women in the context of reproductive rights, because even before the loss of Roe versus Wade, there were already disparities facing women of color in the delivery of adequate health care. Delendor, Harris, and Whites argue that limited access to health care resources and procedures are frequently associated with systemic racism. Racial minorities tend to have a lower life expectancy and higher levels of cancer incidence, which is theorized to be linked to factors like poorer living conditions, greater levels of stress, and racial discrimination. Page 1773. When we can narrow the question of health care to abortions, we begin to see a distinct difference between women of color and their white counterparts. As discussed by Eli and Delmas on page 660 of their text, many white women are privy to medical abortions through private physicians, as well as by undergoing procedures abroad where there are looser regulations on the process. On average, women of color are faced with limited accessibility to these options due to the tendency with which this demographic faces lower income levels as compared to white women. To be clear, this is not to suggest that all white women are in economically stable conditions and racialized women are always under financial duress. However, Eli and Dulmas do not want us to overlook a statistical trend between race and income. 
As it stands, white women tend to experience higher income levels, and by having a greater set of economic resources, the options of paying private physicians or traveling abroad are resultingly more viable because one has the funds to support such calls. Eli and Delmas, page 661. And yet, women of color tend to experience higher rates of abortion. According to a study taken from 2000, abortion rates showcased a clear discrepancy between various ethnic groups. As from the data sample, there was roughly 49 abortions per 1,000 Black women, 33 per 1,000 Latina women, 31 per 1,000 Asian women, and only 13 per 1,000 white women. Eli and Delmas, page 663. Racialized demographics tend to have poor education on contraceptive methods and also experience higher levels of stress, both of which are thought to lend to earlier sexual initiation and unplanned pregnancies as a result. Delendor, Harris, and Whites, page 1774. And yet, the U.S. healthcare system has not adapted to the greater need for abortions amongst women of color and instead has devised a system that limits the accessibility of this community. As I mentioned before, after the Supreme Court ruled in favor of abortion as a constitutional right, they also made space for individual state regulation in the process under the condition that individual states would not create an undue burden for women seeking abortions. Eli and Delmas, page 659. And even though this was meant to be the case, in practice, the system has been engineered to work against the choices of racialized women. Eli and Delmas focus on three factors in the healthcare system that limit the accessibility of abortions. Those being low insurance coverage, a mandatory waiting period prior to undergoing the procedure, as well as state-sanctioned counseling sessions for women seeking an abortion. Medicaid only covers abortions where the health of the mother is threatened. And even though there is coverage for pregnancies resulting from rape, it involves long paperwork that forces victims to relive their trauma. And even though there is insurance funding for women whose health is at risk, it is often denied because it requires exact certification from a doctor that there is medical danger present but the reality is that the science is never exact and doctors cannot always make that call. So many vulnerable women, including women of color, either have to pay out of pocket using money that they would otherwise use for expenses like rent or food, or they have to go through with the pregnancy. Eli and Delmas, page 665. Another subject of concern is the mandatory waiting period prior to receiving an abortion. Despite being a very safe procedure, it is nonetheless advisable to have an abortion earlier as opposed to later because the mortality rate for the abortion procedure increases by 38% with each additional week of a pregnancy. Beyond the threats to health and wellness, later abortions are also more expensive and less accessible. First trimester abortions are performed in a wider range of locations and therefore, the longer that a woman has to wait in order to undergo the procedure, the more she runs the risk of facing greater geographical barriers that could inhibit a woman from pursuing an abortion. Salazzo, page 520. Lastly, there is the issue of the counseling sessions. 
Mandatory counseling is required of 32 states in total, and these sessions have a reputation of promoting the pro-life stance. For example, 12 of the states use the counseling periods to discuss how fetuses experience pain. Five discuss how life begins at conception, and two inaccurately state that abortions can lead to breast cancer. Kaplan, page seven. All of these tactics, the lack of insurance coverage, the waiting period, the counseling, are all meant to deter women from undergoing the abortion procedure due to the pervasive nature of pro-life thinking. Nonetheless, it is women of color who appear to be hindered the most given the frequency with which they require the abortions as well as the influence of economic status. While higher income white women might be able to surmount things like geographical barriers through access to things like interstate travel, or they may have more money to pay out of pocket for the procedure, the same cannot be said for all non-white women. If the delivery of healthcare depends on one's socioeconomic status, it cannot be perceived as equal. This all comes back to the failure of the United States institutions to attend to the race-based discrimination within the country. First, there is little education on contraceptive methods and higher levels of stress amongst communities highly populated with racial minorities, which leads to greater rates of unplanned pregnancies. And after the fact, the healthcare system is inundated with barriers that place an undue burden on women of color. Accessibility is thus restricted at a higher systemic level. Having established that there is a distinct danger facing women of color with regard to accessing their reproductive rights, even prior to the loss of Roe versus Wade, I will now turn my attention to the influence of culture in the matter. Part three, the broader conversation of culture. In her text, International Human Rights and Women's Reproductive Health, Cook argues that the US government has never been motivated to protect the reproductive rights of women. Interestingly, her analysis begins with understanding culture, on page 73, she argues that women have historically held the position as the childbearer, where they have been perceived as a means of producing offspring and little else. Any personal expense that women were expected to incur during the process of childbirth was not socially significant. In fact, there was little cultural attention to the very real dangers that surround pregnancy, some of which include premature death or the onset of a physical disabilities which could face the expecting mother. Cook, page one. Interestingly though, Cook's text does not specifically bring up women of color. Now that we've established that there is a clear discrepancy between white and non-white women when it comes to the abortion procedure, what happens when we look further back in history at how the reproductive rights of racialized women have been treated? It is at this point that I would like to clearly define what I mean when I say reproductive justice. I will borrow the definition from Morrison on page three of her text, where she states that it was established by black feminists who criticized the failure of the women's movement to recognize the unique struggles facing women of color in the context of reproductive rights. The bodies of women of color have been treated like instruments of the state, used either for increasing or decreasing populations as opposed to being something that belonged to human beings who possess agency over their reproductive destinies. 
During the age of colonization, the settler states sought to limit the population of indigenous people, so they infected the women with smallpox to endanger their ability to reproduce and thus attack the entire population as a whole. On the other hand, in the days of slavery, black women were raped and put into forced marriages in order to produce more members of their demographic to enslave. Silliman and others, page 13. Relatively recently, forced sterilizations in eugenics became common practice and were therefore an attempt to reduce the populations of ethnic minorities as they were viewed as the undesirable classes of society. Smith, page 130 and 132. Black feminists were critical after the initial implementation of Roe versus Wade under the concern that their communities would be subject to state coercion that would force them to terminate pregnancies against their will. One 1973 editorial referenced the history of Black women on welfare and how many of them have had to agree to being sterilized in order to keep their relief benefits, and some have even been sterilized without their consent. Silliman and others, page 11. In the past, the state has then been a perpetrator against choice, albeit in a different way. Paying consideration to these examples, Silliman and others argue that female fertility of women of color is reduced to a factor of control and stigmatization, page 10. In this sense, the issue becomes broader than a single event or moment but it is rather more so about the cultural conception of women of color and their bodily autonomy. Truly, the question of reproductive rights today is far more complex than we let on. The loss of Roe versus Wade is not the first dramatic threat to women's reproductive rights, even though it does pose concerns for the future of abortion accessibility in the nation. The upsetting truth is that the reproductive rights for women of color have been endangered throughout the history of the United States. It is not just that they are restricted from receiving abortions now, but also that they have fought for their right to have children also. From colonization to slavery to present day, the state has imposed barriers upon racial minorities with regard to controlling their reproductive fate. In the past, there was the issue of population control, where the state devised methods to attack the reproductive prospects to keep racialized communities from expanding. Now, female fertility is still treated as a controlled variable, given that the state has failed on a systemic level to make abortions accessible to women of color. The shortcomings of the healthcare system to deliver abortions to racialized women, whether it be due to in little insurance coverage, waiting periods, or pro-life counseling, are all factors imposed by the state despite being obligated to protect reproductive freedoms. And even prior to looking at the issues of the healthcare system, we discussed how the state has not attended to the issue of poor sex education, as well as high levels of stress amongst racialized communities, which has lended to a higher rate of unplanned pregnancies. So when we look at the loss of Roe versus Wade, we must understand that this is not a one-off instance or a slip up in the lawmaking of the United States. Since the beginnings of this country's history, the independent choices of women of color have been usurped by state institutions. Misogyny and racism have been the interlocking forces behind many historical and present day attacks on reproductive freedom. Even where there has been progress, like the initial implementation of abortion rights in 1973, that has not equated to accessible health care for women of color because 
As Eli and Delmas noted, it remains a discrepancy between the care delivered to white women compared to that given to racialized women. It is for this reason that Morrison's understanding of reproductive justice becomes important because her definition compels us to look beyond just abortions and to see the broader picture and unique struggles facing women of color. For this demographic, it is not just about possessing the right to terminate a pregnancy, but also the right to do otherwise. And so rectifying this issue means transforming our narrative of reproductive rights. Part four, advocacy efforts of women of color and the future of reproductive justice. Despite the disadvantage facing women of color with regard to accessing medical abortions in the United States, this is not to downplay the extent of their resistance and how advocacy efforts have been instrumental in advancing intersectional feminism. For example, in 2004, the Black Women's Health Imperative and the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health changed March for Freedom of Choice to March for Women's Lives, which ended up being one of the largest protests in United States history. The name change was significant for intersectional feminism because it shifted the focus away from solely abortion rights to reproductive justice more broadly. Fast forward to 2009, when the state attempted to instate race and sex selective abortion bans, the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum was at the forefront of the following protest, and this group delivered detailed analysis on how such bills would be particularly detrimental for women of color. In 2010, a series of racist billboards were placed all around states, including Georgia, Illinois, and Texas. These billboards made statements like, Black children are an endangered species, thus stigmatizing Black women who sought to pursue an abortion. Reproductive justice groups banded together to have the billboards removed, and the group's sister song created a new agency in order to prepare for future instances and to educate others on the dangers of such messaging. In another case, the Native Youth Sexual Health Network showcased the importance of community values by organizing a campaign called Connected to Body, Connected to Land, and Our Bodies Are Not Terra Nullius, which was therefore specific to the voices of Indigenous people and their right to reproductive choice. Note that each of these instances are described in detail by Silman and others on page X and XI. Now, while each of these cases may, may vary to some degree, they share a set of common features that teach us important lessons on the future of reproductive justice. According to Silliman and others on page 10 of their text, all of these examples showcase women's groups sharing the interests of specific racialized communities therefore resisting the tendency of early feminism to voice the concerns of white women solely. Additionally, all these groups support a pro-choice stance, therefore showcasing that even though these communities have faced attacks on their right to have children, their utmost priority is namely reasserting agency and protecting choice. These groups also incorporate identity politics meaning that they do not remove their lived experience from their advocacy and instead allow race to be a dominant aspect of their discourses. Lastly, these groups all promote new definitions of political inclusion, which reveals that their intentions are not just to restore certain rights, but to transform the abortion debate 
altogether. In other words, these groups advocate for agency in healthcare all while articulating the unique struggles of women of color as opposed to erasing race-based discrimination from the conversation. So in this day and age, when abortion rights have been rejected at a constitutional level, our advocacy efforts should reflect the cases that I have just described. That means going forward, we must include and uplift the voices of racialized women. We need to expand our understanding of reproductive justice so as to understand how the state has previously infringed upon the reproductive rights of women of color. As we discussed, racialized women experienced restricted accessibility of abortion procedures even before Roe versus Wade was actively protected in the United States. And this highlights the ways in which institutions have even in the present day acted against the interests of this demographic. And even though these disadvantages were not the main talking point of reproductive rights in the past, where the narrative focused on the theme of gender-based discrimination, this doesn't have to be the case for the present. Progress shouldn't just be about getting back to where we were, but about addressing the deep-rooted systemic discrimination that has always been at play. When we take notes from the previous advocacy efforts all throughout the early 2000s, we can incorporate their strategies so as to move forward from the Dobbs decision. Part five, wrapping things up. So folks, we've made it to the end of today's episode. As we discussed in this episode, while the loss of Roe versus Wade represents a concerning direction of the United States, reproductive rights have long carried a contentious history, even during the active implementation of abortion rights. Specifically, women of color possess limited accessibility for this procedure in comparison to white women. And when we move further back in history, we see that this is not an unusual coincidence. Rather, infringements upon the control and agency of women of color has been a pattern of the state. To consider steps moving forward, we looked at a series of cases in relatively recent years and found that beyond advocating for the rights of choice, we must also center our advocacy on the specific struggles facing women of color in the conversation of reproductive justice. For far too long, they have been erased from the narrative, but feminism is an ever-evolving movement. By following in the footsteps of intersectional women's rights organizations, we can move further in the right direction. And with that, we'll wrap up this episode, A Matter of Choice. And while today's talk may be done, the work's not over. You can find more information on my site where I'll be publishing a summary on our subject matter for today. And tune in next Friday where we'll discuss the rights of Black women and the court system. See you next time.